In ancient Rome, soldiers were sometimes paid in money, but other times they were paid in local commodities and goods that actually held great value. And one of those commodities that they would be paid in is actually salt. So when they would receive their monthly allowance or payment of salt, that was called a salarium. And salt being the Latin word for salt. And it's actually the root where we get our term salary. And so if you want to talk about someone receiving salary, the first time that was used was really actually when someone received a bag of salt. And so next time you get the direct deposit or your paycheck in the mail, we can be grateful now that you're not paid in just a giant bag of salt. Or if you are an employer in the room and you're thinking of ways to get creative, who knows, maybe that could still work today. But salt was very valuable and was used for many things. And then another image I want you to think about as we jump into this morning's message is that in 1839, there was a gentleman named Sir John Horschel who coined the term photography by combining two Greek words. So a photo really means light and then graph means drawing up. And so the word photograph really just simply means a drawing of light. And so as photography as an art form was starting to take shape in the 1800s and then through the 1900s, it took a lot of effort to go and create something to use light and then various chemistry to to capture light and then to have the chemistry of the light to then go and produce an image of something that would produce great value. Well, this morning's message is entitled Salt and Light. And that's because Jesus used these two pictures to describe the life of a Christian. We are wrapping up our series entitled Stories of the Kingdom, where we are taking a look at the stories of Jesus and seeing how they relate to the church and practical everyday life. Now, most parables are centered around the kingdom of God and then the heart of the king, talking about Jesus himself, that that the kingdom of God is like a treasure found in a field of great value that the kingdom of God is like the master who had these workers. And we talked about how he hired these different workers and how he paid them the same and how in the scheme of eternity, we are like the 11th hour workers that we are receiving God's grace and generosity. Then two weeks ago, we talked about how you have the picture of the prodigal son or really prodigal sons and how there was a father owner of a house who showed both love to the rebellious and then the religious and how rebellion and religion don't save us, but rather it's only through Jesus Christ that we can be saved and our identity is secured. And then last week, we took a look at the story of the Good Samaritan and how Jesus really is the Great Samaritan. And that he gives us the picture that the best time to meet a need is now. And that when we love and serve people, that's not a way to life, but rather that is a way of life, that we can go and meet the needs of the people around us. How religion really asks the question, who is my neighbor? And by assumption then is asking, well, then who is not my neighbor? In other words, who can I ignore or judge or leave out? And while religion asks, who is my neighbor? Jesus simply says to be a good neighbor and that you can meet the needs of the people around you. Now, these are some great stories that are called parables, and a parable can be defined as a practical story Jesus tells to illustrate a a spiritual truth. The root word of parable means to bring alongside or to align, and so you take an invisible spiritual reality and explain it through a practical, everyday 
story or illustration, and we get a little bit of insight into the heart and character of God. And then we describe the kingdom of God as really God work, uh, is really the power of God working through the people of God. Now, kingdoms were really a common understanding and place and, and way of ruling in the time that the Bible was written. And so when Jesus came and kept preaching on the coming of the kingdom of God, they thought Jesus was coming to become a physical king. Now, one day he will return and he will physically reign. But the kingdom that God was speaking to at the time was a spiritual one. And so when he died, he died as payment for our sins. And when he rose, he defeated sin and death itself so that those who believe in him, that believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, will be saved, have eternal life, and then a meaningful life now. And so now they live in a spiritual kingdom. And so we live in this age that's seen as an already and not yet. Jesus already came. Jesus already died. Jesus already rose again. And so the kingdom of God, the power of God is already working here on earth, but it's not yet fully realized, which means that while there is good in the world, there is also still evil. There is still brokenness. There is still sadness and pain. And one day, God will eventually deal with all those things. Jesus is returning. Uh, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity, and there will be, there'll be no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. But in the meantime, every day between now and that day is an opportunity for somebody else to get saved, somebody else to come to know him. And so we, in a sense, get to be the people of the kingdom, and then we get to bring this message and bring that with us. That's why when we pray the Lord's prayer, prayer, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so when you pray that, you're praying a little bit of heaven, a little bit of God, a little bit of God's kingdom into your relationships, into your marriage, into your parenting, into your workplace. And while most of the parables in the gospels deal with the character and heart of God himself, today's parable actually is about you and me. It's actually a description of who we are as people and our role and responsibility within the kingdom of God. And so if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down, that your faith is bigger than you. Your faith is bigger than you. We live in a culture and in a time where we get mixed messaging. For example, it it's commonly said, it's, or has been said, famously said, that it's not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, right? It's like sacrifice, freedom, let's go. But then we also want everything personalized to us, right? That's why we have restaurants, you know, you have In-N-Out or you want your burger put this way together at Chipotle, I want this, I don't want this, right? And you go down and everything we want is customized. And now... We watch entertainment that's customized to us. We have shows and movies recommended to us. When we order things on Amazon that get there within like 10 minutes, which is crazy that it can have that. I, I swear, not only does Amazon listen to you, it knows your thoughts. You can think of something and then all of a sudden it'll appear in a sponsored ad the next day. And it's crazy how it does that. But we want everything personalized to us. And so out of that vein, people often then say, oh, well, Religion, faith, that's, that's me. That's, that's my thing. It's a private thing. It's a private matter. Now, that kind of makes sense on the surface, 
but not in reality. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, take your relationships, for example. If my marriage, there are aspects of a marriage that are private, right? But if we went in public and I never acknowledged my wife as my spouse in public, there would be problems, wouldn't there? Like if every time I left the house, I took off my ring and just set it down and say, don't worry, hon, the marriage is private. So no one will know that I'm married out in public. How do you think that would go? Not good, right? Like if you're married, you're married. Like it changes your aspect. It changes how you speak to people. It changes what you do, how you treat somebody. Same thing when it comes to your faith. If your faith is foundation to your being, then there is no such thing as a private faith. There are private disciplines. There are moments that you have for God that's between you and God. But really, your faith should be seen in all areas of your life because it is a foundation on, upon which you stand. Another way to think of it is personal influence creates public impact. If something influences you at your core, then you're going to change how you treat people. And you can influence from afar, but you really can't impact someone until up close. Kind of boots on the ground kind of stuff. Like, what are you doing in the relationships that you have with people that you can make a change or make a difference? That if you're really saying that a relationship with God changes you, then doesn't it make sense that your relationships then would change? You know, faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. You know, if, if someone sets you free from a prison cell, the door is flung wide open, and they come back the next day, and you're still just chilling in the cell, and you're like, what's going on? He's like, whoa, no, trust me, I'm free. I really am, but I just don't want to go anywhere. Like, no, if, if you've been set free from a prison cell, you want to be as far away from that prison cell as possible and to live free in the same way. If, if Christ has set you free, then shouldn't we be people who live as free people, who live with joy that we proclaim about? And so we're going to take a look where Jesus describes the kingdom and I want to give you some context before we jump into the passage together. It's found in the gospel account of Matthew, who was a tax collector and turned disciple of Jesus. And if you don't have a Bible, we actually have some nice new ESV Bibles out there. We'd love to give you one just as a gift uh, to you today. The verses will also be up on the screen. But in Matthew chapter 5, really this story of salt and light, uh, this parable, is found in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. This is the most famous sermon of Jesus Right? They didn't have podcasting back then, but this would be the one that would have gone viral. Okay? But ironically enough, it really wasn't a massive mountain that was there. It was really more of a rolling hill, but Sermon on the Rolling Hill didn't really catch on so much. And, and I would go as far to say that it's not so much the location of the message, but the weight and the meaning of it. And so while it's called the Sermon on the Mount and has been for 2,000 years, I think it's more accurately described as the mountain of the sermon because there is so much material here. There's so much depth and richness to it. Imagine just a mountain with, filled with, with gold that you have to go in and mine. There is so much power and freedom and truth found in the words of Jesus. It can change your life. 
And so the story is in the middle of that. And the second thing is that I want to take note of is that not only is this found in the Sermon on the Mount, or what I would call the Mountain of the Sermon, is that it follows directly when Jesus teaches the Beatitudes. And there's nine blessings that he says in there. So some of the common ones there would be, uh, blessed is the poor in spirit, for those inherit the kingdom of heaven. Or blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. And it goes on. And those things kind of make sense. I mean, it's flipping the world upside down. It's seen as an upside down kingdom. Because in a world that valued pride and power and oppression and strength and riches, Jesus comes in. And also, I want to make note here too, when he starts the Sermon on the Mount, there's this huge crowd. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it actually says, and Jesus sat down and began speaking to them. So he didn't speak from this place of like, ah, you need to listen to me. He's like, okay, you know what? You want to know the meaning of life? And he like sits down and says, all right, listen, listen in, lean in. And he starts teaching them. It says, as the world values one thing, let me tell you what it means to be blessed. Let me tell you what it means to be in the kingdom of God, to be humble, to be meek, to be the peacemakers. And all of those sound religiously good. But then one of the last ones was, blessed are those who are persecuted. <laughs> I don't know if I want that one, though. Blessed are those who arrived in their na- in, for my name's sake and for righteousness' sake. It says, because they will be connected to those who have come before, so the great saints of the past, but then also they will be rewarded in heaven. And so there's this crazy picture, a huge crowd. You got the crowd, you got the disciples. Jesus is chilling on this rolling hill. He's speaking to them the meaning of life. He says, here's the way of the kingdom. Blessed is this, 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 this. And it kind of builds on each other. In fact, we could probably do a whole sermon series sometime in the future on that. It's such a powerful picture. And he gets to the last one. He says, blessed are the persecuted. And it's like, wait a second. And he goes, okay. I described for you what the kingdom of God is. But let me just tell you what it looks like on a practical basis. And so this is the context which he tells his story. So he just listed out the, the blessings. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. All those things. And then he comes and says, let me tell you what, what your life will look like if you do all these things. Verse 13 in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house, all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus, to this crowd, to these people, the most recorded, repeated sermon of all time, says you can be salt and you can be light. So let's break this down. Why was salt helpful? Well, salt was really used for three things. Number one, salt preserves the good. Before they had refrigeration, before they had measures of keeping things, when they had meat and and foods, they would douse it in salt because salt would preserve and, and really keep things from decaying. And what I want you to consider in these uses for salt is what it says, what it does, 
and then what it assumes or implies. Okay, what it says. Okay, so it, it preserves the good. What does it do? I mean, it keeps things for longer. But what does that assume? It assumes that by, on its own, something is decaying. Not only preserving food, but actually it was seen as an early antiseptic. You know, you, now we say the phrase in a negative sense, like, oh, you just put salt on the wound. And because it hurts, it's painful. But the reason they would put salt on wounds back then is that it would help prevent infection. And so it would burn a little bit, it would catarize things, but it would prevent further decay or further spread of bacteria. Even today, in today's age now, when you think about the winter weather that comes, if you go up to Flagstaff or up north and people put salt on the ground, why? Because it prevents the hardening or the freezing of the ground and it keeps things, it gives traction. Okay? So it preserves the good. The second use of salt during that time frame is that salt adds flavor. It adds flavor. You know, they talk about, uh, you know, are, are you a savory person or a sweet person, right? Usually the people lean one way or another. Real quick, just turn to your neighbor to say, just share with them, are you a sweet person or you're like a salty, savory person? Okay, you can share. I, uh, I am a both, and that's probably not appropriate there, but I'm a both. I, you give me some brownies and cookies, I'm in, but it's hard to pass up some chips and salsa, right? Like, if you, like, I rarely finish a meal at a restaurant if there are chips and salsa involved, because by the time the meal comes, we finished like 10 baskets, it feels like, right? Like, and I feel like you even have an, a separate chips and salsa stomach, you know, because like, oh, I'm not that hungry. And then you start eating, and the next thing you know, the basket or the bag of chips is gone. Like, it's not good, right? But, but I love it. I love it. Well, salt adds flavor. If you ever, now, you don't want the chip that has all the salt on it, right? That's a little much. But if you ever had a chip that had no salt on it, it's like, ugh. <laughs> it's kind of bland, right? It's like, it's missing something. And then even on food itself, not only does it add seasoning, does it add flavor, it actually helps bring out the flavor within the food. So there's existing flavor within food that if you put some seasoning on it, it helps bring that together, which is awesome. Um, we, I was on vacation this summer with family, and we were staying in a little Airbnb, and it was a nice condo. I had a kitchen and everything, but it didn't have salt and pepper. And so we were making food. And I was like, all right, I'll just run to the store and get salt and pepper. And I was like, oh, that'll be cheap. And uh, I went to like, the little gas station right next to where we were staying. And I swear they charged me like a million dollars <laughs> for like a smallest thing of salt and pepper. And, it's, and I looked at the cashier. and was like, really? It costs a million dollars? And they were like, and? It's like, all right, here we go. Why? Because we wanted it for the food. Because without seasoning, food can be very bland right? And so it adds flavor as well as brings out the flavor. And so it adds flavors, what it says, what it does, it brings it out. But then what does it imply? It means that without it, it can be tasteless and bland and vague. Okay. Now, the, the third thing that salt does is that salt creates thirst. Salt creates thirst. Along with eating this endless baskets of chips and salsa, you find yourself going through so many cups of water or whatever you're drinking at the time, right? Because when you eat it, it's delicious, but then you become very thirsty. 
And so what does that imply? It implies that there is something to thirst for. Now, Jesus gave this picture to an audience that valued salt, who people were receiving their paycheck in forms of salt. It says, you know how valuable this is? That is what you are to me, and that is what you are to this community. So what are we called to do as Christians? Number one, we're called to preserve the good. We are living in a decaying world. We are living in a world filled with wounds, filled with things that have goodness, but is, is going away when left by itself. And so as Christians, as people of the kingdom, we can preserve the good. We can bring healing to wounds. We can, we can preserve what is healthy. But then secondly, we can add flavor, right? Life apart from God is flavorless. And I worry a little bit because the people in the church, really, we, we've got to get better at this one, especially, right? We need to be the most fun most joyful, most excited people in the community. Why? Because we have the answer for eternal life. And I just mean in a general sense, I'm not picking on anyone in particular. I'll include myself in this, but we go through life. We have been forgiven of our sins. We were dead in our sins, raised again in, for eternal life and for abundance and meaning and joy and purpose. And then we come in and it's like, like come on church we got to add some flavor in here we got a god whose first miracle turned water into wine we have a god who preached when the prodigal son returned it's steak dinner baby let's go let's get the music rolling when you look at the jewish calendar there are festivals that go for days and days and days because they add flavor to life do you add flavor into the relationships? Do you add meaning and seasoning? And then do you bring out the flavor out of other people? It's not about just simply putting good stuff on people, but rather pulling the God stuff out of people. You've been created in the image of God. That means that everyone in your life has a God piece inside of them. They've been wired in personality and gifting, and we've been wired differently. And together, we create this incredibly beautiful mosaic meal, okay? You don't have a charcuterie board with just one item on it, right? It's all these different flavors, all these different tastings it's really just an adult version of a lunchable but i'm in for it and so you have these things here and like there's this great feast that as the church we should be able to bring the the flavor that comes and pull the flavor out of our relationships because we've been given the keys to the kingdom and then the last thing about salt is that it creates a thirst so what you do create a thirst for the living God? Because Jesus offers the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and then refers to it again in John chapter 7, offers what's called living water. That when we drink of which, we'll never thirst again, referring to eternity. The Apostle Peter writes a letter, 1 Peter 3.15, says, Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you. 
But if you have to be prepared to give an answer, that means that your life begs the question. I don't know if our lives are begging questions. Right? I've shared this before, but you know, when you go to Costco and you have to show your receipt before you leave, the purpose of the receipt checker is that they, they want to make sure that the receipt matches what's in your cart, right? You want to know what's already been paid for is in your cart. I think the world is like that. They're checking the receipt of Christians, right? Oh, it says here you've been giving blessing, but I see bitterness in your cart. <laughs> right? It says here joy has been paid for, but I don't see any joy in there. <laughs> now, the beautiful thing is that God works through all people, and we're, we see this because God used a hated man like Matthew to write the letter that we're talking about. And so he's not saying perfection. He's not saying be perfect. But our lives should create a thirst for God. Our lives should be different. Because as the church, as people of the kingdom, as people of faith, it's not just something we hang on to in our private moments of the private days. But through those private moments, we are strengthened so that we can go out and live publicly to make an impact, to preserve the good to add flavor to people's lives, to pull flavor out of their lives, and then to create a thirst that can only be answered by God. Now, he doesn't stop there. He continues on and says, yes, your life is like salt. But then he says, but it's a warning. <laughs> Don't lose your saltiness. In this case, it's good to be salty, right? Use it as slang, not so much now, because as soon as parents use the phrase, then it's no longer cool, which is fine, right? But like five, ten years ago, right, you don't want to be salty. It's like, oh, quit being salty and all this stuff. Well, in this case, I really want you to be salty. Like, God wants you to be salty. He says, but don't lose. <laughs> don't lose it. Don't lose that taste. Don't lose that flavor. And I don't think he's talking about salvation. We can get into it because it's really a parable. It's just the way of life. And he's just really giving us a picture of it. But how does salt actually lose its effectiveness? Well, it loses its effectiveness when it becomes contaminated or diluted. And I wonder, as a church, both here locally, expressed through Mission Grove, but then globally, our, our large capital C church, I wonder if there are spaces where we have become really contaminated or diluted that we have lost our effectiveness and our voice in the community because we're really not that different than the person next to us, right? We're not really preserving anything. We're not adding flavor, <laughs> right? If you've ever thought to yourself or had someone say, you know, well, I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to be like that guy. <laughs> I'll be like that girl. Sadly, Christians are probably the number one thing that keeps people from Christ. But before we get there, it starts with self, right? We don't want a church of hypocrites, but if we didn't allow hypocrites into the church, no one would come. 
Because we all have areas in our lives where we judge. But let's not be that. Let's not, don't be the person that, that keeps people from Christ, right? We're called to be different. That doesn't mean you have to be weird, okay? Some people are like, oh, I'm being persecuted. Nah, you're just odd, <laughs> you know? You know, you're just mean, you're not being persecuted. Just don't be a jerk, you know? <laughs> like, it's like, like, we love to be like, oh, man. I was like, eh, I don't know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> what if we were the place that comes and thankfully through the power of God can be renewed in our saltiness, renewed in our flavor, renewed in our preservatives, and said, I know the world is decaying, but I'm going to preserve what I can. I know that the world is tasteless, but I'm going to add flavor of the joy of the Lord. I know that the world is craving, but what they're really craving at their soul is God. And then Jesus gives this other picture. And I love that Jesus speaks to the senses, because one is on taste, right, and feeling. But next he goes to light, which can be seen. Light does a thousand different things, but let me just share three of them with you. First, light illuminates. Light illuminates. You know, children growing up, growing up, all of them at some point are scared of the dark. And let's be real, even adults, sometimes we're scared of the dark, right? I mean, it's for different reasons, right? Like when you're a kid, you don't like the dark because you don't want monsters to come get you. As an adult, you don't like the dark because you don't want to bang your knee on something when you get up to use the bathroom in the middle of the night, <laughs> right? And you laugh because it's true, right? Oh, the bladders of children. Anyway, that's weird. Too much information. Anyway, um, so what you do typically, right, as a dad, I say, okay, good night, sweetie. I love you. Daddy, what if there's monsters? And I say, well, you'll be the appetizer and I'll be in the other room. So I'm, I'm fine. Good night. <laughs> and close the door. Now you put on a nightlight. So that you can see. Because when you can see, things are less scary. Okay? Now they make the night lights where like, they don't come on unless the, the lights are off. And that's really the picture of illuminating. You are illuminating the path. Jesus, this is a big deal. Jesus calls himself, I am the light of the world in John 8, 12. But in this case, he actually looks at the disciples, looks at the people and says, you are the light of the world. You and all your brokenness and all your issues, you are the light of the world. Now, ours is a reflected light, right? We're not the sun, we're the moon in this case. We're reflecting the light from that and then illuminates there. It says in the Psalms that your word is a lamp unto my feet. Well, if you have a lamp to your feet, that assumes two things. One, that you're on a path. And then two, that you're surrounded by darkness. And in a world that is increasingly darker the gospel is actually shining brighter. And I think we need it more than ever. So light illuminates. Number two, light captivates. You are looking at me right now, looking as lights are on the stage. If the lights are, are cut, right, then you can't see something, but your attention goes to where the light is. But what's interesting is that when Jesus says, shine your light, he says, shine your light before men similarly to light the path for people. He doesn't say shine your light at men 
Because if you give a flashlight to a child with siblings nearby, what will they do in under 30 seconds? Immediately shine it in their eyes. Immediately, right? Or if you're the one kid, every family's got one, you shine it in your own eyes. You're like, ah! Oh. <laughs> right? But Jesus doesn't say, shine your light at men. Right? We like to do that as a church. We're like, ah, sin! Ah! It's like, oh man, <laughs> calm down. Shine your light before men. And then the third thing, it says that, that light radiates. My first stop in ministry world was I was a youth pastor in a little town called Cedarville, Ohio. And I just uh, read this verse and I loved it so much as well as it was the Newsboys Christian band OG days, if you grew up in the church. Like, you know, the original Newsboys, they've swapped guys out for years now. But like the original ones, you know, they had songs like Shine. You know, it was great. It's a great lyric, Shine. Make them wonder what you got. Make you wish that. I was really hoping you'd sing it with me, but that's okay. I was ready for it. Nathan was with me, okay. That's your homework, to go listen to that. Um, but we would sing these songs and about shining, and I read this verse, and it was shining. So we actually called the first student group, my first ministry I ever led was called Radiate. And the reason I like that, and, and, we, and we had the little symbol, Radiate, and we're like, oh, it's cool. And then we had the thing, it was like, gospel, grow, and go, and like all this fun stuff. But the reason I like the concept of radiating is that it's not only visible light, but it's actually, you can feel it, light, like it emits it to where you can actually feel it to your core. Think of it this way, if you are at a campsite and you see a lamppost far away or you see a campfire, what are you going to be drawn to in a cold evening? You're going to be drawn to the campfire because not only can you see the light, but you can actually feel the light. You can feel the warmth that comes. And that's why we get a chance as the church to go and radiate that light, to shine it before men, but then they can actually feel the warmth that comes from knowing Christ. And he actually shares three different images and three different pictures that goes from the large scale into the most intimate moment. Because it says here that you're called to shine your light around the world, then throughout the city, and then in the home. He says, you are the light of the world. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty expansive. And then he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. He says, you notice that city. And this is before electricity, before all of these things. And so even just the candlelight or a campfire or a torch was noticeable. But then it gets even more personal, and it says, even in the home, you don't put a basket over the lampstand. Whether you shine it so that everybody in the home can experience that. So let me ask you, is there a space where you need to shine? I think collectively as a church, we can shine throughout the whole world. We've been called to go and make and multiply disciples, to reach the world with the good news of the gospel. But I think sometimes we think, oh, wow, that's massive. That's overwhelming. So I can't do anything. But then he gets a little more narrow and says, hey, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. What would it look like for the city, this town, these suburbs, this valley, 
to see the light of Christ shining through Mission Grove Church. And if you're sitting there thinking, okay, but where do I start? Let me just ask, are you bringing light into your home, into the most intimate relationships with spouse, with kids, with friends? Because our chance right now as a church is to shine. It's not your job to, resp- to control how people respond, but your job is to shine. We can't be afraid of that because the world will be changed by it. Because when they see it, they're not going to look back at you and be like, whoa, nice lights, bro. It's, it, it's not like, you know, you're the person holding the spotlight onto the stage, right? Unless your kid is like the spotlight holder, no one notices that person in the play, you know? Like no one goes, wow, did you see the spotlight worker in that play? I mean, it's amazing, right? But that's our job. We shine the light, we reflect it so that people then can give glory to God, the true light. See, I said at the beginning of this morning, I said your faith is bigger than you. It's because you have a job to do. And that faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. And, and half-brother of Jesus, James, wrote this in James chapter 2, verse 18. He says, someone will say to you, you have faith and I have works. So show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. What he's saying is be salt and light. And so here's where I would go even bigger, is that it's not just your faith is bigger than you. Our faith is bigger than us. Mission Grove is not just simply about the people in these seats, but it's about all the people who are not yet in these seats. It's in the empty seat next to you. It's to the co-worker and the family down at the cul-de-sac. It's a conversation. It's a text message. Because this is so much bigger than us. Next week is a great opportunity as we have these cards just to pass out, just to text, to invite someone. And so I challenge you to go and to do that because this message is too good not to share. And you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You don't have to have your life all together and all figured out. You simply have to be salt and light to the people around you. Right? Like, man, John, I messed up. How can I invite someone to church when my life isn't right? Like, use it to your advantage. <laughs> Go out and be like, hey, man, you should come to church. They even let me in. <laughs> you know? Right? When you allow the gospel to change you, to change how you speak, what you watch, what you see, your attitude, your actions, you start to preserve the good. You start to add flavor into the meaningless things of life. You create that thirst that only can be answered by God. And then we shine our light. Yes, we're broken. Yes, we're messed up, but we can shine. We can share. We can encourage because our world needs it. And God's invited us into the process. 
He looked down in all of our brokenness and all of our issues. He looked at, I mean, think about it. He looked at Peter, who was going to betray him, who was going to fall, was going to mess up. And he knew that ahead of time. And he said, you are the salt. You are the light. And 2,000 years later, God's looking at us, invites us into his kingdom, invites us into relationship and says, I know the world's dark. That's why I sent you. I know the world is bland, but that's why I sent you. Let's go and be salt and light this week. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you've given to us. That in our brokenness, God, you save us. You've blessed us. You've given us forgiveness of sins, joy and meaning and purpose. So let us go and be salt and light to the world that desperately needs you. We pray for every single person that's in this room or watching online or listening later. But God, then we pray for everyone who's not here yet. That we think the best is yet to come. So let us reach this world. Let us reach this city. And let us start in our home, shining our lights for you. We love you, God. In your son's name we pray. Amen.